0: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is on Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. In the late 19th century, Lulu Hurst transfixed audiences as the Georgia Wonder. An electrical storm supposedly gave the teenager supernatural powers to catapult grown men from chairs. She performed on stages from Cedartown, Georgia, to the East Coast and Midwest. Lulu appeared in front of members of Congress. Her powers were tested by government scientists and Alexander Graham Bell. The faculty at Mercer and the Medical College of Georgia, all baffled by the mysterious force of the so-called electric maid. Then, after two years of captivating audiences, she quit and later wrote a book saying it was all deflection and physics. Atlanta-based author Jessica Handler's novel, The Magnetic Girl, gives Lulu's run a fictional turn and a story illustrating America's historic attraction to cons, bamboozlers, and magical thinking. Jessica will be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on Sunday the 1st. I spoke with her when the book first came out and asked when she learned about Lulu Hurst. Um, I first met
1: Lulu Hurst. about a decade ago, my mother and I were fascinated by the idea of stories of women and girls who were known or believed to be exceptional physically, culturally, intellectually. And randomly, just out of the blue, my mother emailed me a digital clipping from a magazine called Cassiers that was called uh, The Feats of the Magnetic Girl Explained. And I just fell in love with Lulu. And my mother sent it to me sort of as a, a wow, check this out kind of thing. And I just fell in love with her.
0: Well, you wrote her in the first-person voice of this very aware but awkward 14-year-old Georgia Mm -hmm. girl. Mm -hmm. Who Some beautiful lines in here. She wanted to be elsewhere. She had a wanderlust. But she was bound by her family's diminished circumstances, certainly, and by her younger brother, Leo. How how did you – who was also fictional, right? Yes. Yes. How did you create this inner life for this girl?
1: There are – Many versions of the book. I worked on this book for a number of years and tried it different ways. And the first person point of view worked for me very much because I was a teenage girl. You were a teenage girl. And teenagers, regardless of gender, I think if they are smart and sensitive people, it's very hard to figure out what the world is doing to you and how you feel. So the place you go is inside, inside your mind, inside your heart, inside your fears. That's where you live.
0: And inside of her mind, she had powers to captivate. She did. She did. She stopped a wild fox in its tracks, she thinks, by looking straight into its eyes. Yeah. And she was abetted by a book... The Truth of Mesmeric Influence by Mrs. Henrietta Wolff, which you, which you made up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So who were, who were the mesmerists? What did they do? The me- well, mesmerism is an
1: idea that had its beginnings, I think, in the 1700s. There was a scientist named Anton Mesmer, uh, who was a German physician who pretty much started the idea, and he called it animal magnetism, uh, because we are animals. Uh, And we are magnetically attracted to one another emotionally in various ways. So this kind of is a predate. Uh, It kind of predates hypnotism Mm -hmm. as we know it. Um, The idea behind animal magnetism loosely is that we all have fluids in our bodies, uh, which we do, uh, that balance our health and well-being. And it's magnetic force, magnetic fields that pulls them in this direction or that direction. So if they are disrupted in some way, perhaps you are ill, perhaps you are off balance. So he created a
0: variety of treatments um, that ostensibly helped people. And this is something that her father picked up on. You know, he, he, he schools Lula in stage presence and distraction, basically the art of the con. Yeah, yeah. And tells audiences that she gained her freakish power in an electrical storm. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is at a time when electricity was new and, and frightening. You know, people thought, what's going to happen with this dangerous stuff to our bodies? So why is this time of growing science so richly populated also with supernatural
1: Supernatural. Belief. Mesmerism eventually in the 19th century kind of mixed up with electricity because if you think about electricity, you can't see it. Um, so what is it? And if electricity in practice was new, so in rural America in the... Um, mid to late 19th century and really into the 20s, 30s, 40s in the 20th century, people didn't always have electricity. Certainly the big cities started to have it. But what is it? Is it fire? Is it in your body? Is it spirits? People didn't know. So the idea is that Lulu... um, put a pin uh, in and out of a mattress by her cousin's ear during a lightning storm. And now whenever there's a lightning storm, I sort of look at it and go, I wonder if I could do that. (laughs) And she timed it to where the popping of the pin worked with the popping of the lightning. And her cousin, and I I wanna stress that in her autobiography, she does dedicate that book to her beloved family. Uh, But her cousin kind of said, oh, you've got the power of electricity in your fingers. And my sense is that Lulu
0: went, okay, sure. So yeah. (laughs) well that 's part of the thing you know the mind of a fourteen year old girl um, you want to be magic, right? You want to change your circumstances, especially yeah. if you 're growing up in a little town and yeah. you want it to be different so there 's this kind of belief in her own. well that 's what 's interesting about the book. You never quite tell us if her if her powers are real or just in her head yeah I think that the
1: way I have her in the story is she's not entirely sure. Mm. And without giving away the story, I think that she comes to some kind of understanding about it or at least a place to put this idea in her head. Um, But she's not entirely sure of it. I think in real life she was the kid who could win a staring contest. (laughs) Um, I also, research indicates that she was tall. She was a big kid. um, And there's an element of um, fear or discomfort um, certainly in that era,
0: about a woman who maybe had physical power, physical mm. strength, mm. Um, didn't look demure. My guest is Jessica Handler. She's going to be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on Sunday talking about her book, The Magnetic Girl. Um, I'm going to try in detail or, or just to sort of summarize her act on stage. She would hold a cane and have man pressing down on it and suddenly, you know, she would easily flip it upward and men would tumble or she'd sit them on a chair and be able to sort of flip them over. And, of course, the newspaper said she was levitating people. Right. She was lifting tables with 25 children on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's this whole kind of tension between fact and fiction. But it's wonderful uh, because she goes on the road. You know, she's discovered she's on stage in Town, and then she's off to Rome, Georgia, and Atlanta mm-hmm. and then up the east coast. It's wonderful. The, the the life on the road. Um here are some of the acts that you write about. The Jolly Pathfinders, Professor Buncher and his marionettes, Schwartz and Mendel, the Hebrew comedian. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you just make these all up into any of these actual acts from the time?
1: Some of them were actual acts, and I don't know necessarily that she performed with those acts. I think Professor Boncher was a real act. I went through a lot of um, vaudeville programs, mm. and I just love the names. And I know that there were... Um, Various acts like Schwartz and Mendel, um there were certainly people who did monologues of Shakespeare, did monologues from uh theatrical performances of the era. There were also singers there were um certainly animal acts um it was a, It was just fabulous. I wish I could have seen it I know yeah. it just was amazing yeah. but
0: I wonder how audiences would be captivated by a girl wrestling with a cane <laughs> <laughs> no. But there is this kind of like this growing tension between science and humbuggery, Humbuggery, as her father calls it magic, spiritualists and mediums. There was a big boom after the Civil War, and her father says, folks are ready for the humbug. You know, they believe anything wrapped up in a bow. They won't admit it because they they, they don't want to feel like they fell for something. And I couldn't help reading this thinking of – you remember when the Russian troll, the bot farm was indicted mm-hmm. and the people said, like, mm-hmm. it is so easy to convince the American public mm-hmm. of anything. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's – when you're looking at this, is this part of the American character, this wanting to believe in something that's just magic?
1: I think it's part of the human character, certainly the character in any society that is moving so fast that we feel that we don't have control over what we know or what we knew yesterday or two weeks ago or this <laughs> afternoon. Um, I wasn't thinking about the Russian bot farm when I wrote this, and um, other people have asked me, was I thinking about the Me Too movement, things like that. But I'm very interested in why we believe what we believe, and I don't want to discount anybody's particular belief. But I know that in conversation, sometimes people will say things um, And let's go to song lyrics, for example, which is, you know, somebody will say, oh, the lyrics in that song are such and such. And you go, no, they're not. Why do you think that? So I'm very interested in why people uh, have such fealty to beliefs until they don't. What what brought them there? Why did they change? Mm. Right. Um, And this could have to do with health. It could have to do with faith. It could have to do with culture. It could have to do with something as simple as. Um, I can't eat that food because it's bad.
0: Right. 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 Yeah. Not always
1: rational. Not always rational.
0: But she she's out there performing for audiences. She knows she knows it's a bit of a con. But there is a as we said, there's a part of her that doesn't know if it's true or not, and there is this. Um, I don't know, a crippling self-doubt. You know, mm-hmm. every time she goes out there, there's always this flicker of wonder about whether she's going to be able to actually deliver on what she's supposed to do. And, you know, you're a creative, you're a writer, you teach writing to people. Is that flicker of doubt? Is that another human thing? Or is this part of the whole art of performance? Isn't
1: that called imposter syndrome? I think it is. Yeah, imposter syndrome. And sometimes I think everybody has it, particularly, well, I can't speak for everybody, but we were talking about this earlier. It's an element of imposter syndrome. Can I do this this time? And the other element is the idea of learning to perform. And I don't mean perform theatrically, but when you're a teenager, you're learning to perform as the adult you think you're going to be or the adult the world wants you to be. Which, which adult am I going to be and how do I do that? And in a case like Lulu Hurst's, both in the novel and I think in real life, there were expectations on her. She, she earned a lot of money once she got going. Mm-hmm. And um, supported her family. So, of course, she wanted to do that. And, of course, she wanted to be helpful. Um, and that came from performance, which has an element of falsehood. So, right away, there's a, an internal conflict with that. Mm. Who am I going to be? And, I'm, you know, I'm speaking as Lulu. Who is Lulu going to be when she grows up? And
0: what does that mean to her? And what is, what is she, how did she make that person? And she did grow up. She. What do you think she quit? I mean, her 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 biography. I read a little bit of it mm-hmm. yesterday. It, it's just sort of a puff piece. Do I mean, you Do you have any ideas?
1: I don't really know why she quit. I mean, she does talk about the fact that she. In the autobiography, she talks about the fact or writes about the fact that it was time to quit and the people were perceiving her in a way that wasn't true to her, mm. which I think the, the, that emotional truth is, holds up in my novel as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but she never comes out in real life and says, I quit for this reason. And, and here's the reason um, she does in the autobiography in the second half of it, write about how gullibility um, allowed her this fame, which then makes it the audience's responsibility. In the novel, I was very curious because her autobiography doesn't come out and say, I quit for this reason. So I n- wanted to find out, I wanted to explore why would she have done it? What were the stakes for her emotionally, for her family? So I created some issues.
0: hmm well, of course, it's a novel. It's got to got to have issues. Yeah. So you've been living with Lulu Hurst in your head for a long time. Yeah. The magnetic girl. It's yeah. going to be tough to let go of her. What's this like?
1: Um, I I love her so much, and I just um, when I was writing this, I had a um, picture from Frank Leslie's Illustrated um, from I think eighteen eighty four in my office that I bought on eBay. Um, looking at me, and I've taken it down. And, but I haven't gotten rid of it. It's just in a different place in my office. Um, I think she'll always be with me in a good way. Well, if
0: she could win that staring contest, she, she's going to get a hold on you for <laughs> yeah. a long, long time. Jessica Hamler, what a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Jessica Handler is a professor at Oglethorpe University. She's written two memoirs. Her first novel is The Magnetic Girl. And you can see her talk about it at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on Sunday, September 1st. We're going to keep the old razzle-dazzle going with a preview of upcoming musicals on Georgia stages. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more of On Second Thought. We're back with on second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Beyonce, Cher, Elvis, and Gugush. The Iranian superstar's name carries as much weight in some parts of the world as those other legends do here. And Gugush is performing this Saturday at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. For anyone who's connected to the Iranian diaspora, Gugush is a household name known for hits like Nemiyad. Born
2: in 1950
0: as Fawadeh Atashin, Gugush started performing at the age of three. The child star became a superstar across the Middle East. She had dozens of hits in the 1960s, most of them love songs like Koo. That's the Farsi word for mountain, as in, my lover is as solid as a mountain. Gugush is known for her complex rhythms, powerful vocals, and lush blend of Eastern melodic styles with Western instruments. She was a favorite of the Iranian monarch, Shah Reza Pahlavi, and performed at his son's birthday. Gugushi's rise aligned with the westernization of Iran that began in the 50s. With her extravagant outfits and cropped hair, she represented the modern woman. Thousands of Iranian women followed suit, cutting their hair into a style known as the Gugushi. In this song, Jade. Gugouche sings about the pain of leaving all that you love behind, which she and so many Iranians did after 1979, when the revolution gave rise to the Islamic Republic we know today. Government restrictions on Western influences and music effectively silenced Gugouche. While many dissenting Iranians left the country, Gagush stayed. She was placed under house arrest and spent the next two decades mostly out of the public eye. She later spoke about that time with CNN.
2: After the revolution,
0: I went back to my country. In that time, everyone used to tell me,
2: they're going to kill you. I didn't have a choice. I
0: must went back. And I went back, and nothing happened to me. Still, Iranians across the globe cherished her music on bootlegged records and cassettes. In 2000, Gugush left Iran and resettled in North America. Now she performs in packed concert halls all across the world. This song, Bahesht, is from 2014. The music video she produced for it features a same-sex Iranian couple, a direct affront to Iran's persecution of LGBT people. The legendary Gougouche performs this Saturday evening at 8.30 at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. More information is at our website, gpbnews.org. Georgia has its own share of musical superstars, from Ray Charles, who performed with Gagouche, to Ludacris and Childish Gambino. Peach State is also a hotbed for actors, aided and abetted by a booming TV and film industry. Well, those two art forms come together in musical theater. And Georgia is not traditionally known for seeding musicals, but fall is a fresh season for theatrical productions. And theater critic and writer Kalundra Smith says we can expect some musical numbers this fall. Kalundra, so great to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So several big-name productions and playwrights based in Georgia or got their starts here. I think of Aida, The Color Purple, Kenny Leon. Is that a
3: surprise to you? It's not a surprise to me because we have an incredibly talented uh, group of people in Georgia. I mean, performers here are really top-notch. Writers here are top-notch. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. They are doing it against the odds in many ways, um, because you have to be, to quote Hamilton, young, scrappy, and hungry <laughs> to get <laughs> your start. Of it, you know, in Georgia, in general. But it doesn't surprise me that there's now more national recognition coming to the state as a place for the development of new work.
0: Well, that actually is a surprise to me because, I mean, this takes huge money. You don't have the stream of tourists coming to Broadway shows, for example, that you have in New York City. And given Georgia's continued ranking last or near last in per capita arts funding, how are theater companies here able to mount these big productions?
3: That's a really good question. So I would say that a lot of theater companies here are reliant on individual giving. That is gifts from people like you and me who are saying, you know, I really believe in your mission. I really believe in this show. I really believe in what you're trying to do or the talent of this Playwright, or producer, or performer, and I'm going to give. There's also, of course, corporate giving. uh, Places like Lexus, Coca-Cola, Mailchimp, who really stand in the gap when it comes to arts funding. And then there's foundations. I mean, the Arthur Blank Foundation does a tremendous amount for the arts. Uh, Turner. I mean, so there. There's that private giving that's really helping people get it done, but. The thing is, by the time you see a show and it has a professional theater backing it with the funding of those larger organizations, some other groundwork has been laid. There are other places in Georgia like Essential Theater Festival and the New South Playwrights Festival and Southeastern Theater Conference and things like that, where these playwrights are starting those small we maybe we call them semi-professional theaters mm-hmm. where they're getting their practice, so that by the time they get to the Alliance or Aurora or one of the bigger theaters, it's had workshop productions
0: and been developed elsewhere. Uh huh. So who are some of the big players in this game now? As far as uh, but uh, the big productions, you know, of course Alliance Theater is one that comes to mind.
3: Right. So the Alliance Theater um, is typically having a show that's. On, slated for a Broadway transfer kind of is the goal, right? Pretty much every season they've given us for the past several years. Um, so like Becoming Nancy will open in September. It's got a Tony Award winning um, director choreographer at the helm. Jerry Mitchell is behind Kinky Boots, Legally Blonde, the musical, you know, all these big name musicals that you'll recognize. He's the director in Becoming Nancy. So, I mean, they definitely have that. They also have a regional theater Tony Award, which helps with that sort of recognition of, oh, this is a theater that can produce, you know, really great work. Because um, the regional theater Tony is voted on by the American Theater Critics Association. Mm-hmm. And so when a theater gets a regional theater Tony, that's kind of a signal to the industry of, oh, this is a place to watch. So that's part of how the Alliance has been able to do some of this.
0: Uh huh. Well, the Alliance has successfully, as you mentioned, transferred a couple of shows to Broadway. The Prom recently took its final bow on Broadway and was recently nominated for nine 9- Tony Awards let's hear just a bit from that production that musical made its world premiere at Alliance Theatre in 2016 with Casey Nicola as director and choreography what is the prom about and why do you think its origination here does it what does it say about workshopping something in Georgia um what
3: I there is so yes, the prom is one of a number of musicals as you mentioned that have originated here. I mean, you've got things like the Color Purple, Sister Act the musical, that sort of thing, who have all had Broadway runs. Um for as far as the prom is concerned, I think that the fact that it's based on a true story of something that actually happened in a town where a young lesbian girl was not allowed to go to her prom, I think automatically kind of built in some anticipation for that show. Um, and then, you know, when you talk about the team... Um, from the Alliance, I mean Casey nicola is also another Broadway director, things like Tuck Everlasting, which also was at the alliance you know he he 's behind those things, so I think that certainly helps um and the prom is also just a fun show, you know young teenagers uh they are such a huge part of Broadway enthusiasm, but not a lot of shows are for them. Uh And this show, I remember when I saw The Prom on Broadway, I thought, and I sat behind a woman and her daughter, and I was like, yeah, this is who this is for. Like, this teenage girl is able to see an experience of teenagers on stage, and that's really unique and cool. Yeah, that was a
0: big... I remember when Spring Awakening just sort of busted all of mm-hmm. that open a couple of years ago. But, all right, so let's talk about Atlanta theater growers. I mean, people can watch Netflix for a couple bucks a month. Every channel has a streaming service. Plenty of people watch basic free cable. So what does it take to get people over that hump to pay 50-plus-plus plus dollars for theater tickets? What did what the needs and expectations for the audience. Well, that's the million dollar
3: question, right? But at the same time, I want to address like the price piece because people think that theater is far more expensive and removed from their lives than it is. And that is totally false. No matter where you live in Georgia, there is a theater near you that is doing really quality work that is relevant to your community. That's the, just the truth. And um, when it comes to cost, you can see really great professional theater all throughout Metro Atlanta and other, and then in other parts of Georgia for like $20 a ticket. By the time you go to the movies, if you do an IMAX, you could go see theater. Like it's not a a impossibility. I mean, if you go see a preview or a final dress rehearsal, um, there's Blue Star Theater programs where military families get discounts. Pretty much every theater has a student discount of some type um, where your ticket's going to be less than 20 bucks. Um, And then when you go to a show kind of during that opening those kind of first couple of weeks you can generally get a ticket for $30 or less so the price point between going to a movie and seeing live theater and it's professional quality theater is not really that much Um, And then as far as the needs of the audience are, are concerned, different people go to the theater for different reasons. Some people go because they just want the escapism, the entertainment, they want to laugh, they want to have a communal experience, which is all well and good. Some people are interested in a particular topic, which the thing about Atlanta is being a breeding ground for new work is that a lot of the plays and the musicals are going to be super topical so you're going to have things about um, the trans community you're going to have things about gender you're going to have things about race you're going to have things about class you're going to have things about the education system I mean it's all in there um, which is the beautiful thing about being in a market where new work is championed
0: Colander Smith is with us she's an Atlanta based theater critic and writer and we're discussing Atlanta's theater scene and she's giving us a little bit of a preview for theater companies across the metro But musical theater in particular, Actors Express, another theater in Atlanta metro area now showing head over heels, music and lyrics by the all-female band The Go-Go's. Here is a bit of Taylor Iman Jones performing Vacation. So by the way, Head Over Heels does run through August 25th. What's the reality of producers actually making profits and recouping investments in shows like this that don't last long on Broadway?
3: Well, so Head Over, I will say the shining light that I think people need to take note of about Atlanta's place in the theater community is that when... Not every market gets a show fresh off of Broadway. Usually when they start thinking about like second run opportunities and national tours and things like that, you know, not every market's getting this stuff. So it's a really good sign that Atlanta was able to get head over heels like fresh off of Broadway like this, especially since Actors Express is like an intimate black box theater that is like a huge win like it really is just like true colors is going to be doing um school girls or the african mean girls play next spring that was a huge hit off broadway and the fact that like they got the you know kind of one of the first productions off broadway is like pretty significant but as far as like the money and recouping i mean i would say that on the non-profit level you know making the money is, you know, breaking even is the goal, so to speak. You <laughs> know? Right? And then when it comes to uh, stuff like um, Broadway productions, we were talking about commercial theater, um, we can't underestimate that a lot of these shows will have a life on tour, and the touring can sometimes recoup what the Broadway run doesn't get, you know? Also there's soundtracks, you know, d- uh, cast recordings, rather, like downloads, music, mp3s, that sort of thing, merchandise. So there's a whole lot of money when you talk about commercial theater to be made
0: right but know? not necessarily by those little theaters
3: not necessarily by the little theaters but I mean I believe Actors Express extended the run of head over heels so I'd say they're doing okay All right, <laughs>
0: let's hear from another you can't have a theater experience of course without the talent and you have an eye on Georgian Candy McClellan is one that you're watching he or she is performing change at Aurora theater <laughs> Do you keeping your eye on, Calundra?
3: Yeah, so there are a lot of awesome young actors in the Atlanta market. And actually, for the past couple of years, I've done an article for the AJC called Eight Young Actors to Watch. And um, Candy McClellan is definitely on my list uh, for people who were in consideration this year who I'm keeping an eye on, so to speak. Um, there's also folks like Michelle Pokapak, who um, I hope I pronounced her last name correctly, who she... Um, does the um, Asian American Theater Festival here in Atlanta. Um, and she also was in Horizon Theater's production of The Wolves, um, which in general had a really fantastic cast of young actresses. Um, I would say Shannon McCarron is somebody who has also been working in the market and does a lot of musicals down at B Playhouse. Um, so in general, I'm saying like young women are really doing their thing in Atlanta theater.
0: Well, there aren't a lot of young women in Hamilton, Well, it is coming back to Atlanta in 2020. Darn hard to get tickets the first time around. Now fans have a second shot. Do you think it's worth another viewing?
3: Yes. So I would say for people who have never seen Hamilton, definitely still try to get those tickets, you know, wait in those lines, you know, do your darndest if you can. Um, But and it's really a cool theater experience. You know, first viewing, you're going to be caught up in the choreography. You're going to be caught up in the lights and the costumes and the the musical performance of it all because it is mostly wrapped through, right? For people who are seeing it a second time, I would invite them to think about Hamilton more critically. You know, you've seen it first. You've seen the blockbuster nature of it all. You've had the razzle dazzle. Now let's really look at like what um, Lin Manuel Miranda's intentions might have been with this musical, and let's break down some of the areas where Hamilton is super strong and where s- Hamilton needs, you know, some massaging, like in the representation of gender.
0: <laughs> Daring to massage Hamilton, Calender <laughs> Smith. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Calender's an Atlanta theater critic and writer. And before we head into a break, we've got a quick update here. Last month, On Second Thought heard about the history of a nondescript building at 152 Nassau Street in downtown Atlanta. That's the building where Ralph Pierre of OK Records set up was effectively the South's first recording studio. (laughs) And it was there that he recorded country music's first hit, Fiddlin' John Carson's Little Old Cabin in the Lane. You're hearing it now. He also recorded blues and gospel there. Well, lately, 150 Nassau Street has been the subject of headlines from AJC to Rolling Stone Magazine, to right here on our show. That's because the building might be demolished to make way for a Margaritaville resort. On August 8th, as machines were tearing into the building, a Fulton County judge issued a temporary restraining order to put a stop to the demolition of that building and another one that was a former film exchange. The destruction is on hold, at least until later this month. And this weekend, Historic Atlanta will put on a benefit concert to help raise funds for the legal costs involved to save 152 Nassau Street. There's a court hearing next week. You can find more information on this at our website, gpbnews.org. But for now, we're going to give you a little break and meet the Georgia teen who won the Doodle for Google competition. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stick with us. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Next to breathing, Googling has to be among the most commonly performed tasks in contemporary life across the whole world. And that little illustration around the search box? Well, that is called a Google Doodle. The first Google Doodle was created in 1998 when the Burning Man symbol appeared behind the Google logo. The temporary decorative flourishes have become more sophisticated, honoring birthdays, holidays, championing political movements, and incorporating games and animations since then. Each year, the company holds a Doodle for Google contest and invites K through 12 students to participate. Well, this year, the winner is from Georgia. She is 18-year-old Aranza Peno Popo from Lithonia. The theme for this year's contest is "When I Grow Up, I Hope." Aranza told On Second Thought intern Jessica Lowell about her submission titled "Once You Get It, Give It Back." I
2: remember I was going to do like an art competition and the people who are running it, they're trying to give us inspirational talk. And one of the women says, you know, once you get it, give it back. So I guess it kind of inspires me. It means like, you know, once you get a certain skill to try to help lift up other people and also help other people. It's like, I guess your community helps you.
0: People often say, write what you know. And Aranza drew what she knew with her doodle. It shows her Afro-Colombian family inside of their home.
2: There's a picture in my family room in my house. So the picture is of my mother caring my sister. I drew that. So it was me at the bottom. It was me taking care of my mom. So I kind of flipped the switch. So like, even though it's my sister in it, it's kind of a symbol of her affection and love towards us when we grew up, she took care of me and my sister when we were younger. I'm kind of flipping the switch and I want to take care of her when she's older.
0: Aranza is getting a thirty thousand dollars scholarship for winning the contest. She's also getting a lot of attention. She's been featured on the Today Show and the Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon. Please welcome the 2019 Doodle for Google National Winner, Aranza Pena Popo, ladies and gentlemen. And the way it chose
2: me and told me you know, I was going to be on, on national television—that <laughs> was the biggest surprise. But you know, it's a last-minute, like little sketch to me. I probably spent two hours, two and a half hours drawing. I just know that once I got home, I just rushed over and, and tried to complete it. I did not have any dress. That was the only, the only one I drew because I only had one sheet of watercolor paper. So that was the one chance I had at drawing.
0: And she's starting college this semester at the University of Southern California and says that she'd like art to be part of her future.
2: In terms of having a career on art, I'm not really sure <laughs> Even if I don't do it as a career, at least a hobby or something or like. I always love graphic novels, so I think it would be cool to independently publish a graphic
0: novel. Aranza Peña Popo from Lithonia, a graduate of Arabia Mountain High School and winner of this year's A Doodle for Google contest. Google says in addition to Aranza's prize, it will give the school $50,000 for computer or other technology education. 29 Rooms has been called a funhouse for adults, an Instagram paradise, an art you can enter. These immersive art festivals have popped up in L.A. and New York, and this month, 29 Rooms is stopping in Atlanta on a five-city tour. The interactive experience created by the Refinery29 website is as advertised. A collection of 29 distinct rooms of work from artists all over the country. And like the ice cream museums and pizza museums you may have seen on Instagram, it is a selfie haven. 29 rooms and accompanying art park will be at the works on Atlanta's west side from August 29th to September 8th and we've got two of the Atlanta based artists who are going to make work for the show which is themed expand your reality Nika King is with us welcome Nika hi
4: thank you for having me
0: well thanks for being here Sarah Emerson is also with us hello hello All right, Nika I want to start with you first so people can find you on Instagram spell your name (laughs) yeah Um, so
4: you can find me on Instagram at nika and it's spelled n n e k k a a and an underscore all
5: right
0: and that's it all right sarah um, you're pretty much sarah emerson
5: sarah emerson with an h (laughs) yes
0: well instagram is really what this thing is about and i just tried to explain 29 rooms but i would love to hear your description nika when a visitor walks into that space at the works the art park what will they experience i
4: would say just from what i've been seeing on social media and what i saw from the past online it seems like it's just an experience based art mm-hmm. mainly in trying to get out of the white wall gallery mm-hmm. and into more public and more fun, like mm-hmm. way to interact with art.
5: Yeah, really celebrating Making Your Mark. I think that's one of the names of the interactive installation. So really trying to get the viewer involved and immersed in not only the imagery, but also maybe the content and sort of like a gateway to other bigger issues in a really light, welcoming atmosphere. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. a very
0: unstuffy kind of vibe mm-hmm. to it. I mean, you see videos of people flopping down on mm-hmm. colored pillows or <laughs> dancing inside of a snow globe from previous 29 rooms. So it is meant to remove those kind of barriers, to You have to be the right kind of person to go and see art. Is that, is that something you
5: strive for, too? I, I can't speak for all artists. I think most artists don't sit in their studio thinking, I hope only one person who's studied art history sees this work. You know, most of yeah. us want to really have a conversation about the content, really want to, you know, we're putting it out in the public space for a reason, you know, and otherwise, I don't know. So having more outlets and more spaces to uh, have those conversations I think are really important and, and having them in different ways and mm-hmm. getting to meet lots of different kinds of artists that right. you normally wouldn't and other kinds of viewers. Sarah, um,
0: your art is one of the first things that people are going to see when they get there at 29 Rooms. It's part of this traveling billboard installation, mm-hmm.
5: not, not the kind of billboard you might see yeah, on the side of the road. <laughs> no. So what did you make? I made a very large scale, colorful, sort of cartoonish landscape uh, that uh, sort of blends a little bit of abstraction with reality, uh, sort of reflection of the the times we live in while also trying to focus on more positive ways of thinking, so like very literally trying to expand your reality through compassion, empathy, and humor. With the landscape, I wanted to acknowledge the times we live in while still kind of hoping for what could be.
0: So this is not a, like, Monet landscape. No. This is kind of layered. <laughs> things are on right. top of each I other. I think
5: people generally describe my work, and I, I've just come to accept this as sort of a paint-by-number, very colorful, uh, flat shapes, abstracted landscapes. So it's rooted in real spaces, real things, real, real shapes that you would recognize, um, but definitely more psychological, more about symbolism and... Subject. <laughs> so how about,
0: Nika, for you, you're one of the artists who contributed to the Art Park, and that is a space that features work from artists based in the five cities where the exhibit is touring. You are given the prompt, Expand Your Reality. So where did you go with that? Basically, the way I kind
4: of took Expand Your Reality is just kind of go into a space and trying to really open up your thoughts and what is possible. I took it to this mystical, like, plane, like, let's just go into, like, an imaginary world and just kind of like think about your place in the universe. So it got really, like, really heady, but it all simbled down to like an illustration. So it was <laughs> just like- Just one? Um, it's two illustrations. So um, you're gonna walk through the structure and on one side of the structure, you have one illustration that's kind of inviting you into the structure and on the other side is a little bit more about as people, we kind of create the universe. Like all of us have a part in it. And so we're all a tapestry of the universe we all are like the threads that bind it together.
0: So it's all kind connect- of we're connected. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're known for these bold colored illustrations, almost silhouettes, but with complex patterns inside of them. That's how I would describe it. You say it is Afrofuturistic. Yes. So that sounds ex- pretty expansive as it is. Yes. How'd it's, you go beyond that? For me, the Afrofuturistic
4: thing kind of, because I'm not originally from Atlanta, so like I'm coming into it with the ideas of like outcast. Obviously, the the music reaches far and wide in Atlanta. So when I came in, I feel like the music here is so like, especially from that community is um, the black community is like so futuristic and so expansive in and of itself. And I kind of wanted to like touch on that, the fact that like in this community, like you have these silhouettes, because silhouettes are black and flat, but having the different like textures, it's kind of like we're all kind of different, but we're all kind of like making this happen.
0: So the dimensions within the shapes. Yes. Uh, That sounds... I've seen pictures of some of your art, but I would love to... I can't wait to see this. But how about this kind of interactive part? Were you given this mandate to, like, you have to make it something that people will be able to take an Instagram photo in front of? Sarah, Uh you're smiling.
5: I am, because I was really shocked that they did not say that, actually. And I did a drawing that is... Yeah, it's a more of a line drawing that they'll blow up, and then people will be able to color it in. But it's yeah, it's, I think it's going to be really interesting. And so my my piece is uh, glows under UV light, so they the interactive piece will also have fluorescent paint markers, so people will be able to work on that in that way. And so, ah, it really so they can, can be part add, of it. Add, yeah, add they sure. can paint it. They'll paint it. So I think that's really, really interesting. And they did not put a parameter on me at all. And uh, it's interesting listening to Nika talk about her experience coming into Atlanta. Because I also adopted Atlanta as my home. And I was really struck by just how exciting the city is. You know, the music, everything, and also Mm -hmm. the green spaces. So I'm really excited to see her work and how that kind of, you know comes up in the work and for me it's really about sort of this green space around all these kind of like really bubbling city craziness and um so i'm just really excited about that but the make your mark is all about just getting getting involved in the it's it's just a it's actually an expansion of the mural that i created so there's more elements in it
0: mm-hmm. so did you have any idea of like whose work are you going to be next to i mean like this is A very immersive environment. You walk into one room, it's one feeling, one vibe. Did you have any idea? No
5: idea, really? (laughs) You just, like, sent it off? Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, they actually gave me an idea of what the structure was going to be for the Make Your Mark section, for the interactive section. So I knew it was going to be on cubes or in, like, a special space. Um, But I didn't know it was actually going to be in the doorway until I was being interviewed a couple of weeks ago, or in the entrance. Mm -hmm. So um, I am very excited about that, but, of course, I was happily excited to hear that news.
0: (laughs) So how about for you, Nika? What did it feel like to just let this stuff go and, you know, they do what they want with it? Are you usually much more hands-on when you're going to a gallery space or something like that?
4: I'm more hands-on in the making process. It was basically designing something and then, like, sending it off and it's going to come back to me, like, much bigger and, like... Like a present, almost. I'm like <laughs> a present that I haven't seen. I've only seen it through social media. So that part was like that. Letting go part was like really interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. So you uh, have also, Sarah, worked with large scale pieces that are public art before. Uh, the billboard you're making for Twenty Nine Rooms also big mm-hmm. and exposed. But I've read that you describe yourself as a bit of a hermit, so somebody who's you know spent a lot of time in your studio crafting smaller works, maybe not just for an audience of one. Right. Right? The art historian <laughs> certainly. So, what does it feel like, a self-professed hermit, to put big stuff out in the world it's, like this?
5: It's a little nerve-wracking, uh, to be honest with you. But uh, um, I am grateful to kind of be forced out of my studio, and I'm. Uh, I was actually thinking about this on the way here that. You know, I might stay there all the time, and it's not really a good place to be <laughs> all the time. Um, so, you know, being invited to do something like this, I'm actually really grateful for the opportunity to to do something that, this public. And somebody asked me, how did it going on Instagram or being so Instagram will affect how you made the drawing? I didn't think about that. I just did the work that I thought would make the most sense and, and that I thought would um, stay true to the kind of content I want to work with, but also kind of make sense to the space that it was going to be in. So I'm trying not to think too much about maybe the social media aspect, but like Nika, I've only experienced this this um, event through social media so far. So I'm just kind of I'm going with the flow, which is yeah. so interesting. Yeah. But
0: you're used to, you teach at Agnes Scott, yes. right? So your students could be going. Are they gonna think you're a lot cooler this? <laughs>
5: <laughs> no, because they know me so much better. <laughs> they know I'm not cool at all. Oh.
4: I highly doubt that. <laughs> uh, well,
5: but yeah. I mean, this is. I hope a, they go. I this... hope they go and have fun and and really uh, see what's possible and and like Nika said, like where you can put your work someplace and then all of a sudden it will come back to you like a you know completely transformed and in a new space with new people and that's a really exciting thing to see, I think. Well, and I mean, there have
0: in other cities been lines around the block for these 29 rooms things. I mean, people have been going crazy over it for the past couple of years. This is the first. Oh, does that make you nervous, Nika?
4: <laughs> um, I'm just excited. It makes me more excited than nervous. I'm just like, I like to be a fly at the wall at any time kind of these events. I'm just like, tell me what you think about the art. Don't tell anyone I'm the artist.
0: I'm just like, what do you think? <laughs> but yeah. it is also interesting that these are, you know, ephemeral, right? They go mm. up for this amount of time, a mm. couple weeks, and then they come back down how does that affect the way that you think about making art? I mean, does it that it's just temporary. It's moving on to another place.
4: I love temporary art. Me too. Yeah? I love that. There's like mm-hmm. a whole history behind that, and I love it so mm-hmm. much.
0: Is it liberating because it's not there for posterity? I think it's like
4: liberating and beautiful at the same time. Like, it kind of speaks to the testament of social media and the power it has now. Mm-hmm. Nothing really is temporary because once you put it out there on the Internet. It's forever. It's, yeah. So it's like. 30 years from now, someone can, like, type something in and, like, maybe find, like, an Instagram story or, like, find something or a remnant of it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. I'm sure when you were going to art school, did you imagine anything like this? That, you know, instead of digging through uh, the the archives of an artist that you'd just be going online and seeing stuff? Your your work would be out there in that way.
4: Probably when I was younger, I didn't think that the internet would be it. I thought it would be more, like, galleries and like textbook Mm -hmm. and that's like what we're always like kind of taught to achieve but i like the fact that the internet breaks the rule because it kind of like takes it out of the elitism that could kind of come with art and it makes it more accessible to like everybody so i kind of like the fact that the internet is like now that tool Mm
0: -hmm. but
5: is social media now art for some people, I think it is. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think some people. I for me, I'm pre-social media in every way. My process is really built into, um, really was built way before that. So it's it's hard to incorporate that now in many ways. But because um, um, I'm very physical, my works are really physical. I like that they don't last, and so it's interesting to kind of find them, sort of uh, like. The, doing the murals and seeing them sort sort of in the space they were in, and they don't exist there anymore. I do like that aspect of social media, and mm-hmm. sort of like there's this kind of memory or imprint of things that have happened, because everything in life is really temporary. Nothing lasts, and uh, everything is dissolving at all times. So it's really interesting that there's this kind of weird computer record of of things. It kind of
4: makes me think of like the idea of like a was it a folktale mm-hmm. like you remember that mural? And then like people who lived in that area was like, yeah, I remember that mural. So I like lived on with the people.
5: Right, so
0: it was, oral, it was just carried yes. on through oral yeah. processes.
5: Yeah, yeah. no, that is a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah, Digital nice folktales. Digital folktales.
4: <laughs> oh God, it sounds like, like a podcast I would probably
0: listen to. <laughs> and it all started here. I would here. to it. <laughs> Nika King, thank you so much. Thank you. And Sarah Emerson, thank you so much. Thank you. They are two Atlanta artists, and their artwork will be at 29 Rooms, an immersive art experience that will be at the works on Atlanta's west side from August 29th to September 8th. You'll find a video to look at some images of other previous 29 Rooms at gbbnews.org. Earlier this year, we spoke with the Atlanta-based nonprofit The Giving Kitchen. That organization received the 2019 James Beard Humanitarian Award for its role in providing crisis grants and resources and assistance to food service workers in need. Well, now you can help The Giving Kitchen with its mission. Its Dining with Gratitude event runs from August 25th to 28th, and that allows you to eat at participating restaurants and food trucks in Atlanta, Athens, Rome, and Savannah, and they will donate 10% of sales to support The giving kitchens programs so that includes Moe's original barbecue in rome artillery bar in savannah sea bear oyster bar in athens and a whole lot of places in atlanta that include gun show grindhouse and hudson grill there's a list of participating restaurants at diningwithgratitude.com and you can check out our interview with the folks from the giving kitchen at gpbnews.org